Today, the world is demanding more of products and packaging. They need to meet consumer demands, be sustainable, and travel through different channels. Simply put, companies that make things need to respond faster than ever to change. So let's go beyond the shelf to understand how industry leaders in food and beverage, beauty, CPG, industrials, and more are driving innovation in their products and packaging. Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Shelf, the product and packaging podcast, where we interview the people behind the amazing products we use every day. I'm Laura Foti, and today I'm thrilled to be speaking with Stacy Tank, Chief Transformation Officer of Heineken. She is a member of the CEO's executive team and shepherds the company's new growth strategy, Evergreen, to ensure the organization adapts amidst a rapidly changing environment. She is also responsible for corporate functions, including sustainability, ESG, public affairs, government relations, and global communications. Dedicated to the intersection of business and positive impact on society, she has repeatedly authored large-scale movements across enterprises like General Electric, Heineken, and Home Depot, including launching a quarter-of-a-billion-dollar commitment to veteran housing and a $50 million shop-class program that is infusing 20,000 tradespeople into the U.S. economy. She is a 2020 World Economic Forum Young Global Leader, a 2019 Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute, and a 2014 Academy for Systems Change Fellow. She has received accolades that include the Netherlands British Chamber of Commerce's Woman of the Year, PR Week's Power 50, Atlanta Business Chronicles 40 Under 40, PR Week's 40 Under 40, uh, and many, many other accolades. And she's a graduate of Syracuse University. Go Orange. Stacy. welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Laura. Oh, my gosh. That was very embarrassing. I was blushing the whole time. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my God. No, Thanks I, I think that is single-handedly the most impressive bio I've ever read no. on Beyond the Shelf. Oh. Thanks for the warm invitation. It's really fun to be with you. I'm so excited to talk to you. We've crossed paths a few times uh, in General Electric, you know, tremendously large organization, great history, 100 plus year old company. Uh, you're doing it again. Heineken is also an iconic company, I believe 158 years old. What's the history that maybe most of us don't know? Sure. So in 1864, there was a young man named Harold Adrian Heineken. His father had just passed away. His father was a cheese trader, which is appropriate since the Netherlands is all about cheese, all about dairy, drink. They drink milk with lunch and um, definitely always having cheese uh, at every occasion. So when he passed away, he left Harold Adrian Heineken a, a small inheritance or a, a moderate inheritance. Uh, and Harold decided to use that to buy the first Heineken brewery, which was called the Haystack. And he wrote this famous letter to his mother where he says, it's all or nothing. I don't want to buy a piece of the brewery. I want to buy the whole brewery. And at that time, interestingly, to make a legal transaction like that happen, you had to be 25 years old. So he had to become an emancipated minor to even do the transaction. So he bought the haystack. And then within a few years, they ran out of capacity. This is at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And they built the brewery I'm looking at right now, which is across the canal from me in central Amsterdam, which is now the Heineken Experience. But that brewery was operating from the late... Um, 1860s, early 1870s, until in 1980s, it was brewing old beer for the North America, even. 
Um, and then we built another brewery in a different part uh, of the Netherlands and, and of course, have expanded from there. We're in many, many countries all over the world, from the Democratic Republic of the Congo for 100 years, to Vietnam, to Cambodia, to the UK, to Spain, to France, to Nigeria, to South Africa, Mexico, U.S., Brazil, and, and beyond. That's um, I, I love I mean, I didn't know that, right? And I've had Heineken's. Uh, and that's such a great story. I love that idea of all or nothing. For so many entrepreneurs, it really is that. And we tend to lose sight of it. You know, every large company started from a single idea. And I love hearing that story. A lot's changed, though, yeah. uh, since since he started the Haystack. So how has the beverage industry really evolved? Well, it's evolved. And then interestingly, some things have kind of stayed the same. So beer was invented thousands of years ago. You, if you Google it, you see that there are many nations that lay claim to the first beer. I've heard it's Egyptian 8,000 years ago. I've heard it's actually Mesopotamia, which is modern day Iraq. I've actually heard China. So you could, you could look, but thousands and thousands of years ago, folks started fermenting this beverage. And some of the hieroglyphics that I've seen have these big, what look like pieces of pottery with straws hanging out of them. And people would get around, you know, the piece of pottery and they would drink their fermented beer. It was an inherently social beverage and it was also always inherently low alcohol. So it was a good social lubricant in a way where communities were coming together, come together over beer. Um, and then it was also uh, fermented. So it was safe, uh, safe choice versus uh, drinking water, which maybe wasn't so available during those times. And so some of that remains true today. It is inherently a low ABV beverage. And in fact, all the way down to zero, zero now where folks are enjoying a 5.0, a 4.0 or a zero, zero, and you can choose what's right for you. I think the stigma around alcohol or no alcohol is really fading, which I love because I also like to have an option uh, for zero, zero, if I'm driving or getting up early or whatever it may be. But there are also things that are shifting. So we see, for example, category lines blurring between beer, wine, and spirits. And in the U.S., where you are, you see the, the ready-to-drink, the RTD craze, where you don't really know if it's from a beer company or a wine company or a liquor company, but it has probably 4 5 6% ABV, and it's coming in a can, which is how beer has typically been delivered, but it has a different flavor profile, sometimes more neutral, sometimes a bit sweeter. So some of those category lines are very much blurring, which I think is something newer in the last five years. I love that. And I love how you started with the history of beer being about community and bringing people together over a shared experience, uh, and then how consumers have really changed that. It's it's funny because uh, on our prep call, you mentioned Heineken Zero. I, I wasn't familiar with it. And I actually got to give it a try because I had heart surgery two months ago at this point. Oh so for they told me to take it easy, you know, on, on the alcohol. Yeah. And I was with my team and we were, we were you know, we had a, a long work day and we we went to a bar and I wanted to get something just to feel included. Exactly. Right. Because you don't want to be the person that orders a bottle of water, you know, a carbonated soft drink or whatever. Yeah. And. It was so nice to, and I enjoy the taste of, of beer, and it was so nice to order the Heineken Zero and feel like I was, you know, taking part, right? And you bring everything over. And it's amazing how little that is, but um, 
how big of a deal it is, especially to when you look at so many movements around sober curious yeah. um, or people who, who want more, as you mentioned, alternatives, uh, you know, due to multiple circumstances. Mm-hmm. It's so great because it used to be one brand. Mm-hmm. And now there's so many companies that are coming out with options. And I think the most impressive thing was you could not taste a difference. Yeah, exactly. um, That's what I hear how- from a lot of folks, because we just cracked that recipe a few years ago. Maybe it was four or five years ago when Heineken Zero Zero came onto the market and our brewers just kept working on it because they knew that the taste was an opportunity. And then once they got to this recipe, that's when we saw the sales have been growing double digits for four or five years. It's such an interesting um, case study as a marketer, because I think the assumption for a long time was there wasn't demand for this product, right? But perhaps it might have been because there weren't great options to have, right? So a consumer maybe didn't want to sacrifice the the taste profile for that option. And so now that there are so many great options, you're seeing just more and more demand for it. I'm seeing so many different companies come out with non-alcoholic and the ready to drink in the seltzer movement mm-hmm. as well. Um, it's great to see so many, you know, different opportunities. I think, um, you know, your role as chief transformation officer and you've talked about, you know, how Heineken has evolved. It's an iconic company. Um, how are you guys changing to to keep up with these demands? Sure. You know, one of the most fundamental shifts has to do with the way we work as a team globally, how we work together. In the past, we were just here in Amsterdam and then we built a new brewery in central Amsterdam. And then we built a brewery for export in Rotterdam in the 1870s. And then we started to expand globally. Now we have operating companies in 70 markets all over the world, 200 breweries all over the world. And for about 150 plus years, we operated in our silos. And we did that as a choice because we feel that being very close to the customer is where you can make your best decisions. And instead of slowing down to coordinate, we just said, go for speed, go for customer centricity. But over time, you start to see replication and duplication and fabulous ideas that also get trapped in these silos and don't get lifted up to move across to the benefit of the whole system. And so in 2020, we had a new CEO forming a new executive team, which is when I joined in my current role. And we said, you know, we hope to be more like a neural network. Not where it's zero sum and it's I take control, you lose control. More that information is going to flow across in all kinds of directions, but for the overall better kind of wellness and health of the system. And with COVID, we saw this, right? We saw COVID starting in Asia. We saw our Asia colleagues telling us in Europe, this is coming. This is what it is. Our European colleagues were telling us in the Americas, this is what's coming. This is... And then, you know, how do we work from home? How do we school from home? How do we uh, distribute vaccination? How do we, we were learning from each other in this fundamentally different way, certainly inside our company. And to me, it was a real proof point that if we can do that to take care of each other from a health perspective, we can do that with formulations for new innovations. We can do that with systems, with apps, with, you know, the way we're digitizing our route to market, with the way that we're becoming more efficient in other aspects of our business. So trying to move from silo-based operating into this kind of uh, global team approach, also where we have a global strategy on 
a page and every operating company, all 70 and every function has strategy on a page that ladders up to that global dream that we all have so that we all know the parts that we can play to contribute. I think it's a lot the ways of working that are evolving because of the volatility and the disruption in our current environment. And we need to accelerate and be able to bob and weave and adapt and still thrive despite the fact that there's a war on the continent, there's supply chain disruption, there's massive inflation. Um, nevertheless, we, you know, we need to learn to persevere. Absolutely. And it's so important to have that core strategy that everyone can rally around. Something you said is uh, something I hear a lot at SpecRite, which is operating in silos. And I think what what we see in a lot of large companies, and we certainly saw this at GE, is when you have you know great legacy, there's benefits of that strong brand, right? Really mm-hmm. strong values. But your technology is probably a little archaic too, because you've just been operating for longer. You have more technical debt. You've you've embraced technology as it's come about, mm-hmm. where we see a lot of challenger brands that come and have a clean slate and they mm-hmm. can build their operating system for the business from scratch, from the cloud, versus a lot of um, you know, more established companies have on-premise systems. And so they're making that shift. And so everything you talk about is almost more challenging for for a company like Heineken mm-hmm. or a GE, where you just, your technology has, has evolved um, and you need to continue to evolve it and knock down those data silos. And it can be tough, but there's so much opportunity on the other side. You know, the other thing I think about too, when you mentioned all these different countries and pockets of innovation, I think one thing that's really changed is is looking at like TikTok and social media. Mm-hmm. And so the the idea of this consumer being this person in a, in a locale and they might have one interest, I think especially when you look at TikTok and virality of trends, they're going to be passed around mm-hmm. so much faster that to your point, yeah. there might be demand for products in other areas that there weren't because consumers didn't know about that. Absolutely. Are you seeing that driving that demand as well. No, it's so funny you say that. I was on TikTok for over an hour last night because I was like, okay, I want to throw myself into this. I was adding new categories to the people I'm following. I was trying to make TikTok videos, not in like the dancing way, but looking at some of the screens, uh, the filters and the, the little mini editing options that they give you because there's a lot to learn in that environment, really. I'm mostly an Instagram person, an Instagram stories person, because it's also how I stay connected with my family because I'm living in a different continent. Uh, but there's a lot on TikTok. You know, one of the symptoms of what you're talking about is also, I notice this when I go on vacation somewhere and I go to a very kind of random remote place, far, far away from you know where I was born or where I live, And then you get to a place and it can be a jungle, you know, camping resort or it could be whatever. And then you meet the other people who are there and they have the same habits. They're consuming the same media. They have the same kind of um, dietary interests, the same awareness. And it's because we are all consuming kind of mass global media in a different way than 20, 30 years ago when it just was not possible. I'm also amazed at the the speed of how things come to market and, and the life cycle of things is also really short. So I've been living outside the US for three years now and I go back to the US and sometimes I don't know what brands people are talking about. I don't know 
um, about even some current events that just weren't making it into the press in, in Europe. And they've already become a trend and died. And now there's another one. And I said, I've just not heard caught it because it's been years now since I've been out of the picture. Yeah. It's it's amazing. It's the dichotomy of we're so similar, but yet still still different, mm-hmm. right? And it's amazing how some things become global and some things stay stay regional. The last thing I'll share is I was in Trader Joe's yesterday and looking, you know, at the frozen food aisle and they had um, this cheese bread that I had in rural Argentina that was like very unique to our. Is it a pan the pan de- yes, I love pan de- the My favorite because I have celiac and I can't have gluten. So pan de queijo is gluten free and it is yeah. delicious. They had it, but yeah. And it was called chipa, I think chipa in Argentina. Okay. But this was like a very northern, very regional. It's in Brazil and, you know, it's in Portugal, but this isn't like a global phenomenon. No. And I'm like, this is in my. Orange County, California freezer, just to the point of like global trends coming in and out. I just love finding those products. It's it's such a it always surprises me. Um, you know, one thing I want to talk about with you is sustainability. Sure. Because you're because it's you know, it's under your your purview. Many companies are talking about this, um, but Heideken seems to be leading the way. How are you driving this? One of the things I really appreciate in my experience about European companies is that the idea of balanced growth is very well understood. It's not growth at all costs. It's not growth without limits because it's not a purely capitalist society. And Heineken being a family company from 1864, we're publicly traded for sure. But those family roots and the fact that that's someone's name and I know the people who carry that name and I want them to be proud of what we're doing. And I want five generations from now to be proud of what we're doing today. And I imagine in the Heineken Experience Museum across the street, when there isn't an, an exhibit about these years, what will it say? What will they be proud of 50 years from now that we did to try to make a positive contribution, not just to consumers and customers, but to our community, to the environment, to the society? And uh, I don't know, it's just been in the DNA for a long time here in my experience. Our first sustainability report was published in 1994. I remember working at GE when we launched Ecomagination, which would have been in 2005, because it was the year I went to corporate audit staff and it was the last launch that I did before I went to corporate audit staff, so it's easy to remember. And um, that was also before its time. And I remember years later, we were saying that because a lot of things were launching in the kind of decade to follow. One of the other things that's happening in Europe, you have uh, the formation and the strengthening of the European Union, which I'm very impressed by. I think the continental Europe is, is stronger together. I'm impressed by the EU. Personally, I'm trying to be a student of of how you can find these dynamics between, in the U.S., it would be between state and federal. But here it's between country and then continent or however you would express it. But they're also quite active from a regulatory and legislative perspective. So they have now, for example, they're it's not finalized yet, but they're introducing something called the Corporate uh, Sustainable uh, Responsibility Directive, CSRD, which will, in our estimation, invite us as of January 2024 to disclose according to 117 new non-financial reporting KPIs. And we want to be transparent and we're, we're up for it, but it's a lot. It's a lot quickly. We want to do it well. So, and there's carbon taxation that's coming and it's, you know, you start to look at the cost of action versus the cost of inaction in Europe. 
and the cost of inaction becomes higher. So the business case to decarbonize or to become more efficient with water or whatever your topic, more circular, they have a lot of packaging directives that are coming, responsible packaging, packaging and producer directives that are coming at the European Union level. So, you know, on this topic, I think regulation is helpful because it creates a level playing field as long as it's brought into the market and gives us a little time to implement it and do it well. Um, and then I think also because we're based in Europe, we start to look at the other parts of the world with this lens. We also are okay to hold a longer time horizon on the return on investment on some of these topics because we also see climate change is having unbelievable impacts on, you know, there were fires last summer in France where colleagues of mine were were on the brink of being evacuated. You see floods, you see in California, people can't even insure their homes anymore. So climate change, which was once something that we thought was coming at some day, is here. You know, there are farmers who are becoming climate refugees because they can no longer farm and make a living and survive and they have to move. So it feels urgent. I think in Europe, they've gotten it for a long time. And, and it's our pleasure to be able to contribute to that with our Brew a Better World program, which we relaunched in 2021 through 2030, which includes things like our net zero carbon commitment. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because I'm seeing a shift in the supply chain happen. And, I, and you guys are further ahead in, in Europe than we are. But you talk about packaging and, and we talk about that a lot at SpecRight. And with all these new reporting requirements, you talked about 117 yeah. KPIs. Yeah. The reality is most companies don't even know the true extent of the packaging they buy, right? Because a lot of companies, you know, you, you make beer, but you don't, you might not make the pack, all the packaging, primary, secondary, tertiary, it takes to ship that. Yeah. And so when the EU says to you, how sustainable are you? And this is, you know, any company, they have to turn around and ask their suppliers, yeah. right? For that yeah. data. And it yeah. used to be 10 years ago, oh, this is all proprietary information. We're not going to share any of this data with you, yeah. right? Because there was a fear that you would just take it and go to bid and get a cheaper, car, you know, corrugated box from someone else perhaps. But mm -hmm. we're seeing this shift of the need to share data across the supply chain, right? Suppliers have to be providing this data. They have to be tracking it in a more digital way. A lot of this stuff is on spreadsheets and PDFs and drawings. And so to get to this grand vision you talk about, there's so much digitization that has to seep through the entire supply chain to make this scalable mm -hmm. and accurate. And so that's one of the things that I'm really studying um, and looking out for. But the other aspect of sustainability uh, is really in the brewing process, right? And my understanding is that this is an extremely, not, you know, I shouldn't say extremely, but can you talk a little bit about how the actual business is, is relatively sustainable as well? Absolutely. Yeah. So according to the Science-Based Targets Initiative or SBTI, they set the science-based standards for what it means to decarbonize, that we take carbon as a topic. And they talk about scope one, scope two, and scope three. For us, scope one is production. Those are our 200 breweries across the world from Burundi to Vietnam to, uh, you know, Romania, pick your country. Then scope two would be the energy that you're procuring to be able to fuel those breweries. And those two, scope one and two, are 10% of our carbon footprint. And then scope three is 90%, and that's all the way through the value chain, the biggest four drivers being cooling, packaging, logistics, and agriculture. So we've committed to decarbonizing scope one and two by 2030, which is six plus years from now, which is a, such a, a race. You know, we have our decarbonization roadmap. 
we just put it in a tool where we can see every single engineering project by stage gate, CapEx, OpEx, technology, operating company, timing for implementation. So we're getting down to that level of detail because otherwise I, I don't think we would make it if we don't have that transparency. And now we're working brewery by brewery to make a net zero pipeline. And we're indicating which technologies are possible because different countries have different things that are available or sometimes that are legal or not, because a lot of the times your government is your power supplier. So they have a nationalized energy um, utility. And in that case, if we're using for our electrical energy, which is one third of our energy, we can use wind and solar and hydro. But if you are putting, let's say, solar for electricity on your brewery site, that means you're using less from the grid. It means the government is making less money in their government-owned utility. So sometimes these things are not working in concert with each other. We have to work through that together. But the one-third of our energy that's electrical energy that you can get from wind and solar and hydro is the easy part. And we will do that. Some places it's harder than others, but we will do that. Two-thirds is heating energy or thermal energy, and this is where you use gas and other things. This is really hard. This is really expensive, and this is where we need big plant equipment and, frankly, a lot of CapEx and OpEx to be able to replace um, gas boilers and these types of things. And it's a variety of technologies, heat pumps, biogas from a wastewater treatment. It could be um, biomass from sustainable sources that has to go through rigorous certification process, um, these types of things. So. We're now on the journey. We've reduced 18% um, absolute versus our 2018 baseline. And now we need to get all the way to SBTI's definition of net zero by 2030. And then we're also, of course, needing to work on the value chain in scope three, because that's going to be, if we think this is hard, I think that's going to be really harder. And to your point about needing data with your suppliers and visibility, not just so we can report, but also because we have to do this together. So if we have a science-based target, our suppliers need to have science-based targets too that align with ours because our scope three is their scope one and two. So we need to work as a system because none of us can do this on our own. I absolutely agree. And I, I also think it's a tremendous opportunity for business model innovation and for companies to really think differently about this. I was talking to a uh, very one of the world's largest flexible packaging companies, which means they have a lot. They use a lot of plastic, mm. right? Depending on who you talk to, we won't get into it today. Plastic can either be viewed as good or bad. And, you know, I said to them, they said, you know, it was one of their executives said, you know, there are some cases where plastic is more sustainable and we're trying to get our customers to, to understand that. And I said, well, why don't you use data? Hmm. Why don't you give them the data, run the LCA for them, show them this, but that's just not how packaging's ever been sold. Yeah. It's, you know, it's so it, to me, it's like, there's such an opportunity if people make the leap yeah. and all of these businesses that, you know, were commodity businesses can can truly become digital and start to use data and start to have, um, you know, there are a lot of drivers that I can see as a possibility, yeah. but it's going to require a huge culture shift. Um, and everything you described is a huge shift as well. Yeah. You know, how do you continue to foster a culture of innovation, especially for driving such tremendous change? Yeah, maybe one reflection, by the way, on your packaging comment. I totally agree we should be using data and all the executives have to get pretty deep with their own knowledge on the space. But I'm also reminded of the power of stories and stories move people, whether we were around the campfire thousands of years ago or today, stories will move people. And the fact that 
when we remove, so only 6% of our packaging is uh, plastic. And we're always working to reduce. I think that's the latest number, directionally correct. When we remove plastic, we are often picking a packaging material that has a much worse carbon footprint. So we're picking between putting more carbon into the atmosphere and taking plastic out. It's such a bad choice to have to make. But when you tell that story, you go, no, what? I remember the first time I heard that and I thought, oh, impossible, impossible. And then you go, okay, actually it makes sense because think about the other materials that you have to select from. If not for plastic, there's a reason plastic is popular because that's lightweight and because it's uh, moldable and all these things. <clears throat> so I think if the suppliers, maybe they get a few storytellers on board or just start with one and think about the power of story to go, aha, unlock those unexpected insights. And I think you could move people's decisioning. Um, on the innovation side, Heineken has been a very entrepreneurial company from its beginnings, very pioneering um, folks being, you know, trailblazing, going into markets where in some of our markets, there's literally not one other multinational company. So we're there supporting and serving the community. When you build a brewery, you spend a lot of CapEx, you're going to be there 50, 60, 70, you know, in the DRC, we've been there 100 years. So we're very committed to these communities for the long run and trying to contribute in these places where, you know, when you're there, you really can impact the quality of healthcare and the, the ability for people to participate in, in the, in a stepped up economy and these types of things. So, but that entrepreneurial spirit is there. And so I think we were, you know, we were just talking about Heineken zero, zero, those brewers never gave up. No one told them to crack a zero zero. They just love beer and they were messing around and they wanted to come up with something because someone probably told them it couldn't be done. And they said, huh, we're going to figure this out. I love that about the company and, and folks are always doing some skunk works thing somewhere like, oh, what if we did this and that? Then I think one of the best things we can do is identify those winners when they start, you know, getting really um, momentum in markets and then lift them up so other markets around the world can uh, maybe if they make sense for their consumer in those markets they can pick them up and grab them and and apply them so for example we our signature brand i just got sent a, a report that says we have over 500 brands now which i thought it was 300 apparently it's 500 <clears throat> but brand heineken is our flagship brand right it's the jewel and we have Heineken, we have Heineken Zero Zero. But some years ago in Vietnam, there was a consumer insight around the, the smooth taste of Heineken and that the consumer wanted something a little smoother, a little lower alcohol. And they launched something called Heineken Silver. And then the team in China uh, also was experimenting with it. It was doing well. It started to scale in Asia Pacific. Last year, it was the single biggest fast-moving consumer goods launch in Europe. And right now it's launching in the US. And I can tell you that my family members are probably because I am always opening and inspecting their refrigerators, but they are definitely participating in Heineken Silver. So this was something born in Vietnam because they were being entrepreneurial. Okay, my consumer wants this and that, a little less alcohol, a little smoother. Okay, they make something. And then it's a huge global success. And then when you see that and you see that kind of innovation that gets to go to scale, it motivates folks in the company to say, okay, what can I contribute next? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you know, innovation means you have those success stories, but probably more times uh, you have failures as well. I remember when we were at GE, I think it, it, the mantra was fail fast um, and fast works. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, I know Heineken has a really rich history. You talked about the Wobo bottle. Yeah. Um, can you talk about how you kind of instilled that culture where it's okay to try new things, knowing that not all of them are going to work out? Sure. Yeah. I think this is always hard, I would say. And I don't like the word failure because it's so heavily connotated as a negative word. There are things that, that are just the beginnings all the time, but then we do something and we go, oh, you know, turn a little right. Oh, turn a little left. To me, it's just the process of, of trying to deliver something to delight your consumer or your customer. So maybe I just have an aversion to that failure word, but um, there is a very famous example in our history with this world bottle or the Wobo. <clears throat> and the way the story goes, so we were founded by Herod Adrian Heineken. His son, Henry Pierre, was the scientist. And he contributed a lot in the science, especially our A yeast, which is still used in Heineken to this day. <clears throat> Henry Pierre's son was Freddie Heineken. And Freddie Heineken um, was sent to America in the 60s as a young person and learned a lot about marketing and then came back to Europe and introduced a lot of kind of nuances of the brand that are still present today. But one of the things um, that he did, he was on a vacation in one of the Caribbean islands and he saw that there were a lot of bottles tossed around the beach. And he said, this doesn't feel good. This is wasteful and people are littering. Couldn't we do something more useful with those bottles? And so he came up with an idea for a bottle that could be used as a piece of um, building material. You would fill it with sand and essentially it could take the place of a brick. So we could, they called it the world bottle and they produced some of them and they did a prototype and they built one house out of these these bottles that could stack without being crushed and the whole thing. Now, what they learned was because they're made of glass in the summer, when you go inside, it's very, very hot in there. It's too hot for any person to ever go inside. So it wasn't a success. There aren't Wobo houses all over the place, but we use that bottle everywhere. If you go to the Heineken experience, we incorporate it in our building materials there. And it's a symbol to say, swing, go for it. If you have an idea and you believe that you can also right a wrong in society and the environment, you should do it. And if it doesn't work out, hey, we learned something. Glass is hot. <laughs> we shouldn't build houses out of them, per se. And then we, we take that and we move on. So it's a beautiful example. I have a Wobo in my house, actually, that I that I look at for inspiration. I love that. And I I always say I've learned way more from the things that haven't gone as well as I thought they would than from the successes. And you're right. It's just it's all part of the process. Well, Stacey, yeah. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm going to close out with my favorite segment, which is some rapid fire questions. The first is what's your favorite product right now? I just had two of my best friends from childhood fly to Europe and we spent the weekend together and they're both living in the States and they told me about this brand. Well, I noticed their, their joggers they were wearing on the plane called Vuori. Vuori. Do you know it? Yeah. And I said, what is this brand? I've been out of the U.S. too long. And so I went online. Hopefully my husband's not listening. And for Father's Day, I said, good, I'm going to get him some joggers and a shirt. But it's so soft. It's so cozy. So I think this is going to be my my new go-to athleisure. Oh, I love that. I was on an airplane the other day wearing my Viore set and someone next to me had the same no. one. So you're you're on to something. So even from afar, you're, you're latching onto these, these, these uh, trends in the U.S. Yeah, it's an amazing 
amazing product. Um, and just when you think Lululemon couldn't be disrupted. I know. For me, right? it was Beyond Yoga. I love. I love Beyond Yoga, which Levi's bought because of the softness. So for me, the comfort factor is very high, very important. Uh, well, there's a store in Newport Beach next time you're in this. Space. All right. You can, you can go check it out in person. Um, what product or packaging trend are you most excited about right now? Um, low waste packaging. And I would say also circular packaging. So living in Europe, we separate all of our trash, plastic, metal, uh, glass, compost. And you see people always bringing their own bags, always reusing jars, always, you know, and I really, I, it's one, the right thing for the environment, but also it's much less burden on you and your household to have all this waste. You have to do something. It's just, it's, um, it's no way to live. So anything that allows me to kind of eat all the food so I have low food waste or have very little packaging or if I'm at a store and I can just throw something in my purse and save a bag, I'm very into that these days. I love that. The last one is Kill, Keeper Change. We're going to give you a list of three products and you have to pick what you would discontinue or kill, okay. what you would keep or what you would change. I'm going to give you a hard one, Stacey, because I know you can handle it. We're going to give you products from each of these major uh, companies you've worked for. So oh. from GE, I'm going to give you the Yenbacher engine. Okay. From Heineken, I'm going to give you the classic Heineken. Oh. And then from Home Depot, what's an iconic product from Home Depot that we can give you? What do you think, Stacey? Iconic Home uh, Depot product. How about uh, the Homer bucket? Do you know? Oh, Perfect. The the let's do it bucket. Yes. Oh, I love it. Oh, this oh, you just made it harder for yourself. Okay. I don't know what. I don't know. Okay. Kill keeper change. Oh yeah. Uh, well, I have to say, brand Heineken. There's no way I can change it. It's an icon. So by default, that one is going to have to be keep. Um. Oh God. Okay. The Homer bucket. I'm sorry. I'm going to kill it. It's made of plastic. It's made of plastic. Sorry, Homer bucket. We need to get a new material in there. We need to innovate something that's biodegradable. So, oh, that that's terrible. If anyone from Home Depot is listening, I'm so very sorry. Um, Yenbacher engine, I'm going to change. Yenbacher, I believe, takes methane and makes it into energy. This is great. It's too expensive. How can we do this in a micro way so that we can make decarbonization more accessible for industrial companies? I love it. You crushed it. And listen, much love to the Homer bucket. I have one. <laughs> that was this was the hardest hardest segment we've done. Uh, Stay Stacey, thank you so much for joining us. How can people follow you? Yes, yeah, Stacy Tank. I'm easy to find. So I'm at Stacy Tank on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on uh, on Twitter and all the rest. And uh, and Laura, thanks again. This is really fun. It's good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Thanks, Stacy. Thank you. Beyond the Shelf is presented by Specrite, the first cloud-based platform for specification management. Say goodbye to spreadsheets, share drives, and legacy systems and digitize your specs in a secure single source of truth. With Specrite, you can easily share and collaborate on specs with other departments and across your entire supply chain network. Taking a spec-first approach enables you to accelerate product and packaging development, go to bid faster, report on sustainability, and ultimately spend less time chasing data and more time making amazing things. To learn more, visit specrite.com. That's S-P-E-C-R-I-G-H-T.com.